0: Wings Things Podcast. I'm Bart Winkler. We're going to talk with someone who we talked quite a bit with during the uh, football season. Our Green and Gold Insider. We call him Michael Cohen. Uh, now with the Athletic. So this is a uh, pretty recent news. The Athletic, of course, it's popping up in cities all throughout the the country, and now it's coming to Wisconsin. So you guys have a Brewers writer, you have a Badgers writer, and then you're on board for the Packers. Uh, how did this come about, Michael? and what kind of coverage can people expect now that you're over there?
1: Well, the athletic, I think is is a really exciting
0: enterprise in that you know they're sort of trying
1: to blaze a path here as um, you know the newspaper industry continues to to struggle across the country, you know for for reasons that we're all familiar with by now. And so what they're really trying to do, is go back to focusing on good stories and good writers. One of the, the um, difficult parts of, you know, working at uh, a newspaper is that there's there's such a demand for every piece of content related to the team. And, and so I think that um, there can be times where you're asked to produce so much content that maybe you don't have as much time as you would like to focus on, on more in-depth stories or uh, something, you know, maybe that, that goes... Uh, uh, feels the curtain back a little bit more uh, because you have the time to explore it and report it a little bit more fully. And so that's really the design of, of their beat coverage uh, at the Athletics. So I'll be covering the Packers. I'll still be at all the games, all the practices and all that, but they're really stressing quality over quantity. And so I'll have opportunities to write longer stories, um, you know, more deeply reported stories, hopefully things that are really, really interesting because of course it is a subscription service. So um, you know, for about 350 a month, um, you know, that gives you access to not only all the Wisconsin coverage, but all the coverage in other cities. And, and as you mentioned, it's across the country. So they've got New York, Chicago, Boston, um, Dallas. They've got Los Angeles. They've got pretty much every major city you can think of. And so for, you know, 350 a month, you get to read really good quality journalism with no advertisements, no pop-up videos, no nothing. It's just the clean written word. And so I'm excited about what it could be. And hopefully uh, people will follow along and, and it would be awesome to have uh, their input on the types of stories they'd like to see.
0: Not to get like too inside the business, but do you have like a, a set still, even with the quality over quantity, is there a set amount or of how many times you need to write a week or you, you're you're looking for good stories and when there's a good story, that's when you publish.
1: Yeah, so I'm definitely going to be writing a few times a week. There's no doubt about that. Um, it could be more one week. It could be a little bit less one week. It sort of depends on how things are coming along with the particular stories I'm working on. So if I need an extra day or two for something, you know, they're okay with that because if the end product is something that really gets people's attention or grabs somebody's interest and maybe it, it you know, convinces a few people to sign up and read it because you won't be able to read it unless you sign up, then, then that's really what they're looking for. Um, so I'll definitely be writing a few times a week. I'll still be writing after games, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm ironing out the details now to to start up a new podcast. So I'll still have a Packers podcast. It just won't be exactly the same as the one that I was doing with Tom Silverstein when I was at the, the Journal Sentinel. So all the same types of stuff I was doing before, just hopefully um, you know, I can take it to a, a different level and, and really give people something that they want to read.
0: Now we'll have Michael Cohen on again for, I believe, how long have you been here now? Is it the fourth season, third or fourth?
1: yeah i've been in wisconsin for three full years and this is the start of my fourth season it's crazy how fast it goes
0: so we'll have you on the morning show here on the fan for the fourth year and we'll talk to michael uh, mondays fridays and then another time during the week depending on uh, what time of the year it is you how did you get into i don't think we've ever i've asked you this how did you get into covering football with the nfl because we've talked a little bit about other sports and we'll talk about soccer here which is why i wanted to have you on a little longer Uh, i know you've told me you hate baseball uh, you must you must have a general like for football in some way, or are you someone that looks at it sort of how someone would cover city council or a news beat, that this is the thing in front of you, this is what you cover, or do you have a genuine like and love for football?
1: No, I like football. I do. Um, I think my appreciation for football is a little bit different than, than maybe a lot of other people because the town that I grew up in didn't have a high school football team. My high school, didn't. it has a team now, but when I was there, they didn't have one. Um, and so, you know, for me to get into football, it was more because that was something I went and did with my friends. Like we had in high school, a group of, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 of us. Um, and we played, uh, every Saturday or every Sunday, uh, every Sunday, once a weekend, I guess is the best way to put it at, you know, this place in our hometown. And we actually played, I can't remember the exact number. I've, I've lost track, you know, now that so many years have gone by, but we played every single, weekend for like three straight years without missing a weekend regardless of weather so we played in ice we played in snow we played in 100 degrees we played in zero degrees And it was just two hand touch it was co-ed it was just a way to get everybody together and do something on the weekend so I think that was where my appreciation for football came in and then from a, a journalism standpoint uh, when I was in college at Syracuse at the uh, student newspaper I covered the football team there for a couple of years in addition to the basketball team and And then after my second job, which was in Memphis, um, I got a call from Tyler Dunn, who was of course my predecessor with you guys on the show and also worked at the Journal Sentinel. And and Tyler and I went to school together. Tyler was a senior at Syracuse when I was a freshman. And when he departed the Journal Sentinel to move back home to Buffalo, he asked me if I would be interested in sending him some materials um, to take his spot, if the Journal Sentinel was interested in me. And so that's what I did. And it, it sort of went from there. And the reason I like covering the NFL now is because I think there's um, not so many games, like a baseball and a basketball, where it feels like all you're doing is covering a game. I think that you know, the schedule, the way it is, it gives you opportunities to do some other things throughout the year. Still football-related, but different types of stories I need. And then I also think that I enjoy the challenge of it because since the sport that I've never played um, obviously, X's and O's wise, I had everything to learn when I started covering it, and that is a big challenge for me because it's so foreign and so different that I like uh, the fact that I have to really try and find things out, and that it doesn't necessarily come easily to me.
0: You're I didn't know that connection with Tyler. Um, that makes sense, but it's also interesting. So you get here to Wisconsin, and then I think there's, I've grown up in Wisconsin, and I feel like even if you, I feel like even if you're in Wisconsin, since you're two weeks old, but you were born in an Illinois hospital, there's always that little. You're not from Wisconsin. Do you get a lot of that, or no?
1: No, not really. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't have a, a Midwest accent or anything like that. But And you're not um, a shareholder
0: no. like me of the Packers? No, <laughs> no. And
1: I, that was going to be my next point. I think the biggest thing that helps me in terms of my coverage is that since I had no ties to this area, since I had... Only been to Wisconsin once prior to moving here. Um, I have no affection for the Packers. I didn't grow up with a soft spot for them or anything like that. I actually grew up as a kid uh, a New York Giants fan. Connecticut is kind of split between. I would say it's probably like 45% Giants, 45% Patriots, and then maybe 10% Jets slash other. Um, and I happen to be, um, you know, in a place where um, you know my friends around me were Giants fans, so that's what I up with, and I think that really helps coverage-wise, you know, just that I was separated from the Packers, because it means that if they lose games, it it doesn't matter to me, and I don't have any sort of emotional stake, in it. if they win the Super Bowl, that's great, I can write good stories about it, if they go 0-16, you know, then there's going to be good stories about that, too, so, um, you know, the, the end result doesn't matter to me, and I think that that allows for the best, most accurate and fair coverage, because you don't have a vested interest in what's going on on the field.
0: Well, I appreciate the coverage, not just because you're on with us a few times a week, but I think you do a great job. However, when it comes to, like, rooting for sports or watching sports with the fan interest, you're much more of a soccer guy, would you say? Soccer, your first love.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was the sport I picked up, I think, probably when I was four or four and a half, and um, I've loved it ever since, I still try and play, which is more and more difficult now as I get older and my knees don't cooperate, but uh, yeah, that by, by far is the my preferred sport to watch, to play, to do anything with.
0: I've watched, I've played, I've coached, I've refed, and to me, you say the thing about the X's and O's with football. That I mean, that's a big part of it. I talk about football, I talk about baseball, I talk about basketball. Obviously, I've played those things at some degree, but I'm not as versed in the X's and O's as somebody that would be a professional and then they go into broadcasting like some of the guys we have here at the fan. I like the soccer part where I can just sit back and watch something and not have to like worry about breaking it down. But also the hindrance of that is soccer is the thing I probably, I mean, I know the most about, I can understand the tactics. I get what they're doing. So I'd like to talk about it more, but I also don't want to, if that makes sense.
1: (laughs) I understand what you're saying. I think that, you know, of course, I love soccer ever since I started playing when I was a kid. But I didn't really begin to appreciate the tactical part of it until I would say the last maybe five or six years. Um, and that's not to say I wasn't aware of certain tactical strategies and things when I was playing in high school. But it really with the uh, broadening of television coverage in the United States and the ability to watch, you know, every Premier League match if you want to, or you know, Fox has the television rights to the Bundesliga. And obviously, there's been. European championships and World Cups that get tons of of coverage. But I think that now that I've been able to see soccer, you know, several times a week, um, I think that my ability to understand the types of players you want in certain situations or why, um, you know, this particular body type fits better here and not there. um, I've I've gained more of an appreciation for it only within the last five or six years, like I was saying. So um, I would definitely say that I'm still, learning about the game in that regard, just because before it was televised so frequently, the only way you could really see it was maybe occasionally if there was a big tournament that was televised or, you know, if you really took the time to talk to coaches or read coaching books and things like that. And I just didn't do those things, uh, you know, before uh, when I was younger. And now it's just really fascinating to me that you can have so much soccer at your disposal here in the United States if you really want to.
0: Is it is it more high school level or club level when you get into that age in Connecticut?
1: Um. Well, so I I did not play club. Um, I, I could have, I guess, if I wanted to, but I never really tried out for club teams. I Were they at the same ball.
0: time, or was it like a summer sp- fall thing?
1: So um, it's kind of in Connecticut. Like everybody plays rec soccer when they're you know four, five, six, right. seven, and then. Starting like maybe eight or nine, you get into travel soccer, which is where you're playing some of the teams around you, and then like the step above that would be club soccer, and that's where you're playing more regionally. So maybe you're going to Massachusetts or New York or New Jersey or even tournaments across the country, and that was I guess like the the top tier of of uh, play outside of soccer. I didn't do that uh, both for a cost thing and because I don't know if I was quite good enough to compete on a regional level, um, but So I played travel soccer all the way up until high school and then played four years in high school. Um, And and maybe in college, um, you know, playing some intramural stuff with some guys that had played at higher levels than me, I started to appreciate things a little bit more. But honestly, it's just watching, watching, watching and listening to some of the announcers from other countries that, you know, really, really, you know, get this stuff because they probably played at extremely high levels that I really started to uh, understand the game a little bit deeper
0: people ask me uh, which which of your teams is your favorite? you know you, you talk about the Packers Bucks, Brewers, Badgers, and I say I say it's the us. soccer team. I mean soccer's my sport. That's the team I follow and then they don't make the World Cup and I'm absolutely devastated and heartbroken. and I was trying to I was trying to talk about that on the air and our audience here, not a lot, I mean not a lot of soccer people, at least not the ones that we hear from. So I was trying to tell them, The U.S. not making a World Cup and not being able to explain really with a good sense why is like if Aaron Rodgers was healthy for a season and they still went 0-16. That level of confusion and frustration, that's what I tried to equate it to. Was there a disappointment for you when they didn't get in or how much do you follow them at a national level?
1: Yeah, I follow them a lot. Um, When I was in high school, uh, my summer job was part of a, a soccer company that ran a bunch of camps and had some travel teams and Premier League, uh, excuse me, not Premier League, and some, uh, some teams that played on a, on a regional and national level. Um, I was just in the office, and then I did some of their summer camp stuff, but the the business was owned by Tony DiCicco, who used to coach the women's national team and, and all that stuff. So he was my boss. Oh, nice. And his son was there as well. And, and so I really got into the national team at that level because, you know, when, you're, when your boss says, uh, you know, won gold medals and been yeah. in the World Cup and all that stuff. It's it's pretty neat. Um, and so I definitely follow them, and and I was crushed as well. But I knew I was going to watch regardless just because for me, like I built my whole summer around the World Cup this year. <laughs> I specifically, like, didn't go on certain vacations because I knew that I was going to want to watch this And it's only every four years. And the amount of matches that I watched is sickening, but probably, you know, have people be like, oh, my God, go outside and do something. You're so weird. But for me, I love it. And so I was definitely crushed that they didn't qualify, especially given the financial resources that we have here, both in terms of training facilities and, um, you know, the the fact that we actually do have a very stable, you know, college uh, association, whereas, you know, other countries, they don't really have college sports in that level or to that level, I should say. So it's of course catastrophic and devastating, and and you know you wish you wish like heck that the that the United States qualified. But I was always going to watch regardless. So uh, it wasn't as much of a disappointment to me as perhaps maybe for the casual soccer fans that without a local tie I have no interest at all.
0: This comes up every four years. Whether the U.S. makes it and loses, it comes up. Or if they don't make it, in this case, it comes up. While they're not winning because our best athletes aren't playing, which is basically an argument saying the U.S. could win the World Cup if they wanted to, but LeBron James is playing basketball. I don't know if that's true. I mean, there's some skills that would translate for some of these guys, sure, but I also think with as big as the country is and all the different procedures in place, you should be able to find 23 guys in that age bracket that could compete on a world-class level, yet for whatever reason, we're not able to do that here.
1: So I keep going back and forth on the population argument. Um, you know, if you look at this year's World Cup, look at what, you know, Uruguay and Belgium did with populations of, you know, under 10 million. And then if you look at some of the largest countries in the world, like why isn't, why aren't China and India absolute powerhouses and neither one qualified? And the U.S., of course, would be right up there with them as the, the three, you know, most populous. Uh, countries in the world and and yet all three were not part of this, and so I really don 't know where to stand on the population argument on one hand, of course, the larger the sample size, like you said, it, you should be able to find those twenty three guys to make up a world cup squad that can you know compete and you know at least show well for itself on the flip side of it, I think that if there is a smaller country it becomes easier to funnel a larger percentage of young players into the sport. I mean, look at what Iceland did. You know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there was a fascinating article. There was one in the Washington Post and there was one, I think it's ESPN the magazine or maybe it was sports illustrated. I can't quite recall, but it talked about how, um, you know, the, the percentage of young kids participating in some level of youth soccer was like astronomically high relative to, you know, just about, any country that, that you can compare it to for from a World Cup standpoint. And so that, I think, is the benefit of having the small population. That if, if it really is a small population in a football-crazy country, uh, football meaning soccer in that sense, then you can, of course, um, really, really hone in on the training and the commitment and the leagues and all those types of things. Whereas if you're in a country that's as large as a China or a United States or an in India, kids are going to have so many different interests, and it's just so difficult to... Um, you know, guide them into one particular sport when there's so many different socioeconomic classes and, and not to mention just the fact that there's other sports that they'd be interested in. So I go back and forth on that argument, honestly.
0: Uh, what what, I, what bothers me is when people say, well, how are how are we not better? They're, I drive around and I see kids playing soccer, you know, all the time. And that five-year-old, six-year-old kids playing soccer is not, I mean, in America it's you're taking your kid there and they're, they're not, they're not doing anything. The dad's a football coach or, you know, some teenager from the local school doesn't know what they're doing. There's not – it's just – there's. it's a mess here. And I thought when the USA didn't make the World Cup, there would be some incentive to try to figure out the system, kind of like with Germany, what happened with Germany when they were disappointed, uh, what, four or five cycles ago. I thought there would hopefully be some beginning of a restructuring here. But you either have kids that – play just to run around and then some kids, if they're good, they'll go. But then the football coach thinks they can be the quarterback. So they'll pry him away. Or then you have kids that then have to go and play club and then it's too expensive. Or maybe some kids play college soccer, which I don't, uh, with college soccer, I don't know where that's going to get you long-term because I kind of want to send him to the academies, but then there's no good academies here. It just, the model, there's so many directions here which you should still be able to find 23 guys, but you still, you still can't. So I was hoping for some sort of structural change, but the problem with me hoping that Michael is I don't know. I don't even know where to begin.
1: What I've always wondered about, and, and perhaps this will come across as really naive if there's anybody listening that knows more about, you know, the practical side of this, but this is more just a theoretical argument. I've always just kind of wondered, like, what if the United States said, okay, you know, the best youth training for soccer players is not in our country. We have to understand that. And we have to, you know, grasp the fact that the England's of the world and the Brazil's of the world and the Germany's of the world and the Spain's of the world, whatever they're doing at a youth level is clearly more effective than what we are doing. So with the amount of financial backing that the United States has as a very wealthy and successful country, I've always wanted them to like set up academies but do it in other countries and I don't mean go there to recruit other kids I mean if you can find a group of 10 11 12 13 year olds that are willing to you know really commit themselves to soccer because that's the age that kids are doing it at in the other aforementioned countries if you can find that group and maybe you can set up a USA academy in a Germany or in an England where there's American kids playing as a team but on foreign soil against foreign kids but maybe they can at least be associated with the lifestyle and the things that have to go certain ways in order to become professional soccer players. I think one of the things that I didn't really understand when I was younger is that a lot of these, these kids, uh, I shouldn't say kids, a lot of these guys in the World Cup, you know, there's an extremely large number of them that don't have college degrees and a fairly large number of them that don't even have high school diplomas because a lot of them are going into these academies where it's a soccer Um, education hybrids, you know, designed just to focus on those two things, but many of them are turning pro at 16, 17, 18 before they might even complete a high school diploma. Now, you can argue that that's not advantageous because what happens when soccer ends, if you don't have a high school diploma, it's really, really hard to get a job, and that's absolutely accurate and absolutely a fair criticism, but I think that for people to expect the United States to compete with these types of nations without a similar infrastructure of the youth program or at least a similar pattern in their youth program, I don't I don't know how reasonable it is to assume we can get on that level.
0: No, oh, but and then it's money too, if you're gonna send a bunch of kids over there, unless you're doing scholarships. I just right. I don't wanna see kids having to play or having to pay to get the best sort of training. And you look at some of these other countries too, where there's kids that'll just pick up a ball, and, and that's not even a ball. It's like a soft rock. It's a bunch of socks rolled together. Yeah, and you can make – I mean, that's that's the thing when it comes back to me for soccer. Soccer is the easiest game to just play when you have none of the equipment to play with. You can figure it out, and you can find a field, and you can you can do something. And I don't know – I had some guys in about a month or two ago, and they put on a free camp at Milwaukee Lutheran, which God bless them for doing that because – you're you're getting the game to more kids that maybe otherwise wouldn't know it. I don't think the USA is going to win the World Cup in four years, but you got to change an entire sort of system and structure. I I, st- I just think that there should be enough ways for that to happen. So if you look at if you look at the guys who have gotten that far, all right. So that's where the next step is. There's guys despite all the messes in soccer and all the different avenues and all the different politics all the way down to youth U6 leagues, there are guys that get through it at a world-class level. And this happened, this happened, what was it, eight? It might have been 12 years ago. No, maybe eight, or maybe even four. I just remember I was watching TV, and it was Graham Zuzi, and it was uh, uh, Beazler, Matt Beazler. And they just had a nice World Cup, and then they have this big announcement, we're signing with Sporting KC. And I was pumped at the time because I'm trying to root for the MLS and I want the MLS to be good. And I'm pumped that Michael Bradley stays with Toronto and I'm pumped that Josie stays and I'm pumped to see Clint come and play with Seattle. And then I, you know, you watch this world cup and it's just, it's hurting. I think MLS, it was not designed to, but it has indirectly hurt the United States soccer program. Meanwhile, strengthening some of the other teams in CONCACAF because that's where they send their young guys. And that's where we send our top guys. So at least at the pro level, if a guy can get through all that way, I would much rather now they play in Europe than than stay here.
1: Well, that's the one thing that I think Jurgen Klinsmann um, doesn't get enough credit for. Obviously, there were a lot of things that you can pick apart in terms of the way he managed the team when he was in charge. But the, the two big things that stand out about his approach that I think have to happen for the United States one is exactly what you mentioned. I think that if you want the United States national team to compete and be among the best, maybe they don't win, but maybe they're getting to the round of 16 or the, or the quarterfinals in, in a next major tournament. I think your best players have to be playing overseas. I think it's a problem when the majority of the starters on your national team are playing in MLS. Um, I mean, you look at Jeff Cameron being over in Stoke City in the Premier League, or DeAndre Yedlin playing for Newcastle, or you know prior to that you had Tim Howard at Manchester United at Everton, Brad Buzon at Aston Villa. You know those were some of our, our better players in the last five to six years, or you know in Howard's case going back even farther. and you know what do they all have in common is that they aren't playing here. You know you, the list can go on. You look at John Brooks playing in Germany, you look at Bobby Wood playing in Germany. I think that you have to find a way to nurture your best talent in the best league. And Christian Pulisic is the latest example of that. In fact, his family, you know, flat out moved to Germany so that he could get this training and this, this expertise and this sort of indoctrination in, in the world game from a young age. And obviously, as we mentioned, that won't work for every, every family, both from a practicality standpoint or, you know, more likely a cost standpoint. Um, but I just think that the best players have to be playing in the best leagues. And so I agree with you that, you know, wanting the most recognizable American players to stay at home so they can throw the game. I think that that is a very short-term and narrow approach of what to do with the United States. To me, that the American, to me, the, the the Major League Soccer boom will happen when the United States is a real player on the global stage. And in order to do that, I think we need to be capitalizing on the second thing that Jurgen Klinsmann got right, in my opinion, which is finding players. That maybe have never spent, you know, more than a weekend in the United States, but are eligible to compete in the yeah. United States through through citizenship rules. I mean, think about the guys that he brought in, whether it's Fabian Johnson, DeAndre Yedlin that I already mentioned, John Brooks, Bobby Wood. These are guys that you know have a lot of experience in other countries. You know, maybe they were uh, military kids or whatever the case may be. But we need to be finding these players. Um, you know, I, I'll give you a perfect example of one. On the England World Cup squad, a guy who played only as a substitute in one of the games, I think, or, or perhaps he started the, the group stage game against Belgium, but Trent Alexander-Arnold, a starter for Liverpool at right back, played in the, you know, started in the Champions League final as a teenager. He's 19 years old, and he's emerging as one of the best young fullbacks in the world. Well, I don't think he was ever going to play for the United States, But, you know, there was an article in the New York Times that said, based on the citizenship of, I believe, his grandmother, he is eligible to play, or he would have been eligible to play for the United States before he uh, was capped by England. And, And to me, that just struck me as so jarring, because this is a player that is on the world stage every single weekend as a starter for Liverpool, and yet that was the first article that I had ever read about him having any potential connection to the United States. And so that, to me, is the problem. We need to identify these players that have an opportunity to play for us if they choose, even if it's a slim one, even if, you know, like Trent Alexander-Arnold, he was always going to play for England. But why are we not pitching these guys? Why are we not trying to get them to play for us or convincing them, look, England is fine, but why don't you come and build something, you know, for a a country that has all the resources but maybe just not the success? So those are the two things we need to do. We need to send our best players abroad now because once the national team gets good, then I think the interest domestically will pick up. I don't think we can build... The interest domestically and then expect the national team to be good because of it. I think it has to be the other way around.
0: Where do you stand on bringing pro rel to America?
1: Oh, I think they have to do it. I, I Cause I was anti bring-
0: it for a while because I, Michael, I was such an MLS Homer when it started. It started when baseball went on strike and sure. uh, I was so mad at baseball. And I said, I, I love soccer. I want this league to grow. I bounced around on some different favorite teams got into Portland a little bit. I bought the MLS direct kick package. And then once they, you know, missed out on the world cup, I realized Bart, this league is going, this league is hurting and for ways to improve sending your guys, as we talked about overseas, but also you've got these teams. I just, I think the MLS and some marketing and the U S soccer association, I think they're all working against the goal. And I would like to see pro rel here. I know it's going to take time and you got to convince these people but I just you're not going to be good unless you do it, I think now.
1: No, I totally agree. I think that the biggest reason why promotion and relegation would be huge for you know the United States in terms of the pro league we have the pro leagues plural that we have here is that it it prevents people from becoming complacent, and by people in this case, I mean clubs you know it, it doesn't benefit anybody if there's teams that finish in the middle of the pack every year are fine with finishing in the middle of the pack. You know, you need to find a way to get up to the top or at least be afraid of finishing at the bottom. And I think that when you look at the premier league, that's part of what makes it so exciting. Every year, the seventh, excuse me, the 18th, 19th and 20th place teams get kicked out of the league and they have to go down to the lower division. And then in the second tier, the top two teams advance automatically and then teams three, four, five, and six are in a a semifinals and finals playoff, um, you know, like a tournament style. And I just think that adds adds so much stress, so much incentive and so much, um, you know, a sense of angst for these teams that they have to spend the money to compete and to win. And so if if that was the case in the United States and there was an incentive uh, to stay afloat, to be in that top league, well, then maybe owners open up their pocketbooks a little bit more. Maybe they make the stadiums a little bit better. Maybe they spend the extra dollars on that um you know player from another team or another country that can draw a little bit more interest so i think that it's really difficult for me personally to to get into mls without promotion relegation knowing that all the other teams and other leagues that i love have that feature because it it doesn't feel like the same authentic soccer experience for me
0: well like the milwaukee there's a team called the torrent here and they play i don't know I don't even know what they are. They're like, I don't even fourth to fifth division. If they had at least not a realistic shot, but a shot to maybe someday be in the MLS. Okay. Well, now people around here are more interested in that league, in the next league, in the league above it, maybe in the MLS. I just think it would raise the uh, attention level of the sport as a whole. We talk about how many people are playing the game in this country. There's a lot playing the game. And then there's people that are desperately trying to play the game. They're just it's not at the at a world class level, but there's enough people where you can build club teams. You can have you can have six club teams in Milwaukee. I mean, if you wanted, and there are some club teams here, Bavaria and the Croatian Eagles, and you could give these teams at least an outside shot. I just think it would cultivate the sport better as a whole. The problem now is going to it after it didn't start that way. So now, if you're an owner of, you know, D.C. United, why the hell are you ever going to agree to this? And that's something they have to get over.
1: No, I agree. And for for, the people that listen to this, this podcast and watch the Premier League, which I'm guessing would probably be the majority of soccer listeners on this podcast because that's the most popular league in the world, you know, look at, like, this past season, what it means for a team like Brighton, you know, who have now this beautiful new stadium now that they can afford being in the Premier League. And you know they're in a part of a country that is that is nice, and you know people want to go there because it's it's pleasant weather-wise and and all this types of, of stuff. And and you watch what it means to the fans, you know, just their faces in the stands or the little kids that you know we're rooting for this this small club that you know is never going to be a Manchester United or a Manchester City or a Chelsea or a Tottenham. But all of a sudden they get to play those teams, and those teams that I just mentioned all have to come to your stadium once a season. And so it's just. It's a whole different level of excitement and um, community engagement. And, and I completely agree with you. Um, if, if all of these small teams, even teams like in the USL, I don't know how that would possibly blend with MLS in a promotion-relegation kind of scenario. But if you're a team, like I'll give you an example. In Connecticut, they're trying to start a new USL team coming, I think, next year, my, my home state. I think it's called Hartford Athletic. And, you know, if that team had the ability to one day ascend to a a program that's nationally televised every week, or, you know, it's just at least in the top flight. I think it helps build the community interest because you can actually get on board with rooting for something over a a longer period of time. And and I couldn't agree with you more. I think that would be awesome. Uh,
0: About four years ago, I was in Vegas. I won a poker tournament. Uh, Thank you. And I beat this guy from England. And so we went and I bought him a shot after, and I said, Look, man, I I love soccer, but I don't have an EPL team. So whatever team you like, sir, I'm going to root for yours. He goes, you don't want to do that. I go, why not? He goes, they're never, well, they're never bad, but they're also never good. They're always right in the middle. And since then, Michael, I've been a West Ham fan. Okay. Well, who do you root for?
1: I'm a Manchester City fan. um, And that goes back to way before they were good and way before they had this influx of capital with the new owners. And the reason I liked them was because when I played in high school, I was this tiny little kid. My freshman year, I was 5'1", 95 pounds. And, um, but they had this winger, this guy named Sean Wright Phillips, who played the same position as me. And he was only like 5'7", and maybe 140 pounds if he was lucky. And I just loved the fact that there was somebody playing on you know, the top flight that was the same size as me in the same position as me. And, and I just liked the fact that there was a little guy that I could root for. And then, you know, fortunately for my existence as a <laughs> band, they had this major influx of capital with new owners from the Middle East. And now, of course, they're the juggernaut. That's one of the best, you know, four or five clubs in the world. that has obviously changed the tenor of my uh, rooting experience. But I love Manchester City. And then, you know, last year, 2017 in the spring, uh, I went over uh, with two of my buddies and we went to three Premier League games and one of the games we went to was at Leicester and that was through Leicester and what they're doing with the club and of course, everybody knows the story of them being the wicked long shots, 5,000 to one odds, win the Premier League and then they did it. That to me, they've sort of become like my second team because I've I've been there and I've experienced the stadium and I've seen the neighborhoods and everything and so uh, those are the two teams that I tend to root for but for sure, Manchester City is my, my favorite club.
0: I know you're in the press box a lot for the game, but how would you compare the neighborhood situation over at the EPL to what you see in Green Bay?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, for Leicester, for example, their stadium is sort of like right in a residential neighborhood, so it's not unlike Lambeau Field in that regard. Uh, But the fan experience is very different. Um, You know, of course, American fans, when it comes to football, they might get really loud on third down, or, of course, they know when to cheer after a big play or a big interception or whatever the case may be. But the thing about the English game is that, you know, the cheering doesn't really stop. There's songs throughout the game. There's songs for specific players that are chanted and sung by everyone from kids to, to elderly people. And uh, I just, you know, I remember talking to, uh, which football player was I talking to? Oh, man, it was one of the Packers. Um, gosh, I can't remember who it was. But anyway, he had just gone on a trip to Spain to watch a game, I think it was. And I said to him, you know, what did you think? And he said, look, I thought an NFL stadium was the most exciting venue I'd ever been in. And this is a player. This is somebody on the field every Sunday. And he said, it wasn't even close. I mean, you watch a soccer game and and the fan experience is like nothing you've ever been a part of. And and it's nothing that will probably ever be replicated in the United States. So I do encourage people. I know it's expensive and I know it can be daunting you know, trying to buy tickets for something in another country. But if you do love soccer and, and you want to experience it, it's absolutely worth it. Like I said, and two of my buddies did three games over the course of seven days and it was like one of the coolest trips ever we went to a game at manchester united we went to a game at Leicester city and we went to a game at swansea and uh and they were all fascinating
0: well the packers have the g-force so and uh the cheerleaders <laughs> so that's good too hey we uh we'll do this again sometime when it comes up because it's always good to talk soccer and i think it's good to 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 uh you know, people that listen to the show, they know another thing about you, that you're a big soccer guy. And I did say earlier, you hate baseball, and that's okay to say, because you told me that once.
1: Yeah, no, that is fair. Uh, Baseball is the one sport that I never even really played as a kid. I I think my mom signed me up for baseball one session, and I lasted about two weeks, and I didn't like it. So, My appreciation for soccer and for basketball are because I played those things and and I have fond memories of them. With baseball, I just never had that. It was never the the game I loved or the game I played growing up as a kid, and so I've just never gotten into it because I never really experienced it, And, and so I don't really like baseball. You know, My friends do. I'm generally kind of aware of what's going on, but not as much anymore as when I was in high school, so soccer, basketball, football, sure, I'll talk about those anytime you want, but... The baseball discussion. I wouldn't be of much use to you.
0: Twitter at Michael underscore Cohen thirteen, and then how do people go sign up for the Athletic?
1: Yeah, so um, theathletic.com dot uh, is the place to go, and there's promotions there. If you want to click on the Wisconsin specific website, I think the one we have right now is it's three forty nine or three fifty a month. That's three dollars and fifty cents a month, and that gives you access to not only all the Wisconsin based coverage, but it gives you access to everything across the country. And you also get a free T-shirt. So for you know, about 40 bucks a year, uh, you can have you know, some of the best sports writing that's out there. And it comes in a really clean and friendly way with no pop-up ads, no autoplay videos, none of that stuff. It's just stories and words from some of the best writers in the country. So hopefully you guys will follow along, and we'd love to have you. And uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully writing some stuff that everybody in Wisconsin and outside of Wisconsin will enjoy.
0: Michael, appreciate it. We'll talk uh, very soon.
1: All right. Sounds good. Looking forward to it.